we are um, been in a series for about 16 years on um, the parables, and um, I'm glad to say that we are now entering into the new, the next section of those parables, which is the section of the parables of judgment. Last week, you guys talked about the parable of the the tax collector and the Pharisee. You remember um, the Pharisee had this record of things he did right and things he never did wrong, and God says, "I'll tell you the truth." The tax collector who has no record of right, only a record of wrong, knew that and said, forgive me, I'm a sinner. He was justified before the, um, the, the, the Pharisee. Now, if you remember, that parable was told in Luke chapter 17, which means we are nearing the very end of Jesus' ministry. There's only about a few more chapters left, Luke 17. I think it goes to Luke 24, if I'm correct. So there's only about six more chapters left, and um, that's a we're at the end of Jesus' ministry. So just to remind you, these parables, they started off, we've been doing them in order. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we had the parables of the kingdom. Um, the, all these parables are about how the kingdom is growing, right? The, the treasure in the field, the seed in the garden, the kingdom is growing. Then as Jesus enters into the heart of his ministry, we call those the parables of grace. Those are the majoritative of his parables, and they're all about grace. They're all about how God loves the least, the last, the little, the lost, the dead, and he raises those kinds of people out from their dead, pathetic lives and gives them a new one. But he does not raise the winners and the best and the first and those who are pursuing their own life. Some famous parables in that section would be the parable of the Good Samaritan, for instance, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the unforgiving servant where the king forgave him his great big debt, and then the, the, the servant was unable to forgive a small debt. Those are all within the parables of grace. And now we're entering into, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he is now on his way to Jerusalem. He has set his face like flint to Jerusalem, and he knows he's going to die. So yes, death has been in on Jesus's mind throughout all the parables of grace. That's been obvious, I think. But even more so now, death is at the forefront of Jesus's mind. He knows he's about to die. And these last six or so parables are all about judgment. God says, look, a lot of these parables are going to end with, and he was thrown into the outer darkness where there were weeping and gnashing of teeth. And most of those parables that didn't like that, I don't know about you, but leave my head spinning. What? Why him? Why is he being thrown? If he's going to get thrown in there, I'm going to get thrown in there. Are you saying, if you ever read a parable like that and felt that way? Just me? I'm the only one who's scared that I'm going to get thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth? Okay, we'll be good company, right? If we read those parables the way we, we have been. So I'm excited to enter into these. But before I do, I want to just say one more thing about grace. Before we leave the parables of grace, I want you to know we're never going to leave grace. Even as we enter into the parables of judgment, you're going to see it tonight, we're not leaving grace, which I'm excited about. Judgment is real, but grace trumps judgment, and we're going to see that. So real quickly, let me say it again. The gospel is paramount, and the gospel is simple. The gospel is news. It's news. It's good news. It's news about something that has happened in the past, not something that you need to do. It's not advice about what you need to do. It's not about you. It's more about him and what he has done. And all you have to do is receive the news, believe it, and you shall be saved. That's what the Bible says. No one can argue with that. But here's the problem. If I preach just that, it always gets people feeling insecure, feeling uncomfortable, feeling like maybe they want to say something, yeah, but what about judgment? What about wrath? What about God's holiness and our pursuit of that same holiness? 
Let me, let, me read, let me read a quote from an author. The church has found that plain old hang-judge sermons sell, but that grace remains a drug on the market. So a pastor who preaches, uh, God's going to get you, going to hang you in the court, man, everyone loves those sermons. Preachers can preach those sermons and they will sell, but grace remains a drug, meaning something that's bad, <laughs> that's still on the market and it shouldn't be. Let's get rid of that. He goes on, as a preacher... I can, with the greatest of ease, tell people that God is going to get them, and I can be sure that they will believe every word that I say. But what I cannot do without inviting utter disbelief and serious doubts about my sanity is proclaim that he has, in fact, taken away all the sins of the world. See also John 3.16. And that he has solved all the problems he once had with sin. I cannot tell them, as John does, that he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Nor can I ask them, as Paul does, to believe the logical consequence of that statement, namely, that there is, therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when you preach grace and when you preach the gospel, there's always some people out there, as Dr. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you preach the gospel and you don't have people asking you, if you're an antinomialist or if you're against legalism or laws to get you saved, then you haven't preached the gospel clearly because when Paul preaches it, that's what he gets. When Luther preaches it, that's what he gets. When Spurgeon preaches it, that's what he gets. And when Satterfield preaches it, that's what he gets. In fact, I'll often hear people say this, well, that there you've been preaching is just cheap grace. That's what they call it. The grace alone doctrine has been attacked by the expo you know, those who are against it by calling it cheap grace or easy believism. To which I've always responded, it's not cheap. It costs Jesus pretty, pretty miserable death on a cross, so it's not cheap. It's very extravagantly expensive. And as we've seen over the past 16 weeks, it's not easy to believe. It is not easy to believe Jesus when he says, just die already. Stop trying so hard. Just die to yourself. Let me raise you up because all I need is losers. I don't want winners. All of us as humans want so desperately and so badly to keep our records and to, um, to, to prove that we have validated the gift. We, we, we earned it. We are worth it. So now, with that being said, but, but where is judgment, Mike? Where is God's wrath? Where is God's anger? I feel like you might be missing out on half of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Well, let me say this. The grace alone doctrine does not mean that there is no judgment. Think about this. There is no such thing of, as grace unless there's judgment, right? <laughs> Where would you be given grace from? You know what I mean? If God says, I'm going to kill you because you're a sinner, grace is, but I'm going to look over that and forgive you. That's, that's grace, right? I, I, I have every right to snuff out your life and throw you into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But in mercy and love and kindness and grace, I will forgive you. But more than that even... I am going to put my wrath and my anger and my judgment on one who is worthy to take it for the whole world. So the cross alone proves to us that God is still a God who judges. He's still a God of wrath. He's still a God of justice. So do you see what I'm saying? You can't have, grace does not mean no judgment. In fact, by definition, it means there must be a judgment. So when we see all those passages in Scripture about God's anger and God's justice and God's wrath and how you better try harder and you better do better because you're never going to make the grade, those verses are true, but we need to see them that side of the cross. 
on the cross, Jesus has paid for it all, and, it's, and, and, and the anger and the wrath and the judgment of God has been meted out on one, Jesus. So after Christ, it's good news, isn't it? <laughs> you can't have good news unless you have that bad news. You can't have grace unless you have that. Do you see how that works? So judgment is real, and it still is real, but it always has to be read in light or interpreted in, in, in scope of the cross. So as Jesus is on his way to the cross, he's going to say some pretty, things, some pretty harsh things. Throw him into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Well, because I'm going to the cross to pay for that. I'm going to go to the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I will do that for you if I have to, Jesus says. But guess what? When I die on the cross, you won't have to if you believe my words, if you follow me. That's what Jesus says. Am I right? Okay, so before I move into the parables, we have to set the stage this, morning, or this evening is going to be kind of like a stage setting for the next six weeks. Um, you remember with the parables of the kingdom and the parables of grace, there was like a mantra that I said all the time in both of those sections. It was like a key that unlocks the mystery of that parable. And if you understand the key and you interpret every single one of those parables within that key, they all fit together and they all make sense. You probably don't remember what they were, so let me just give them to you real quick. The first section was the kingdom, and the key that unlocked the mystery of all of those parables was understanding that all the parables of the kingdom were about growth in mystery. Growth in mystery. The kingdom of God is growing, and it's growing mysteriously. No one knows how, no one knows when, no one knows where. You can't even see it. It's invisible practically, and you can do nothing to make it happen, and you can do nothing to not make it happen. You know, it's like a seed that goes in the ground. You don't know, right? The farmer puts it in and goes to bed. He doesn't know. But he comes out, and boom, there it is, took over the whole field. That's what the kingdom is about. The second section of grace, the motto, the key, is resurrection through death. That is that Jesus is going to resurrect those who have died to themselves, those who are least and little and last and losers of this age who have come to a place of death to self, taking up their cross, trusting only in Christ, See also the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son or the prodigal son. They've come to the very end of themselves, and Jesus says, look, the lost is my cup of tea. I will raise them up. But the Pharisee who stands up and says, look at my list, he has nothing to do with winners. So you got that? So what's the key to judgment? This is going to be so good. Inclusion before exclusion. You're going to see this over and over and over again. Inclusion before exclusion. What does that mean? It means that no one is kicked out who wasn't already in. If Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, then the whole world is in. It's good news for the whole world. And so everyone's invited. Everyone's in. Jesus says, lowest stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens it, I'll come in and eat with them. By the way, they put that verse on the bottom of an In-N-Out burger. Do you know that? Yeah. I went to Texas this weekend, and they have an In-N-Out burger there now. They did not have In-N-Out burger when I lived there. It was only in California. And all my friends had said, In-N-Out Burger is the best burger in the world. So when I saw that In-N-Out Burger, I was like, stop the truck. to pull over. I got to get one of them burgers. Went in there, got an In-N-Out Burger. And underneath, you know, the little wrapper, it said Revelation. I think it's 2014 or something like that. And it says, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens, I'll come in and eat with them. No one is kicked out who wasn't already invited. Let me give you some examples. Um, just, just to whet your appetite. You remember the parable of the king's wedding? He throws a huge wedding. He invites all the riffraff in society to come to his wedding, and he's there. Everyone's in the wedding, right? The wedding feast. But then he notices someone who's not wearing the right garments. Do you remember that? And he kicks them out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And how many of you have thought, you know, when you read that parable, said, but why? 
because he's not wearing the right clothes? What does that mean? Confusing. Well, before we get to that parable, I just want you to see he's already in the party. Do you see that? He's already included, so inclusion before exclusion. Let me, let me do another one. The ten virgins. There were ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom to come to the, to the, to the, to the, to the wedding. In my estimation, that means they believe, right? They're looking, they're waiting for the bridegroom. And then they make some mistakes, they get locked out of the party, they knock on the door and say, why can't we come in? And the bridegroom says, sorry, you're too late. But did you see how they were already in? The beginning of the, par of the parable they're in, at the end of the parable they're out. One more, my least favorite parable in the whole Bible, the parable of the talents. Here's three servants the master gives each of them a certain amount of money, and the last servant is scared of him, and he buries it. And then when the master comes and says, you fool, you should have at least put it in the bank, gave me interest, and he threw him out with his weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I never understood that parable, but I do see this. There's inclusion before exclusion. Do you see that? He's already in. He's already a servant of the master before he's excluded. So, inclusion before exclusion. Do you got it? Does it make sense? We still want to see where, how it works, though, right? We've got six weeks to unpack that, but I want you to see the key. Perhaps another way of thinking of it is even more complicated, which would be to call it non-judgmental judgment. <laughs> what does that mean? Jesus is going to bring judgment, but he's not doing it because he's judgmental. If you get judged, it's because it's your fault. He's already given you every opportunity to be saved. He's already invited you to the party. He's already opened the door. He's already gone to the highways and the byways and practically compelled you and dragged you in. If you're not in the party, it's because you refuse to be there. It's because you've chosen not to listen or to heed or to, or to have faith. So it's inclusion before exclusion. It's non-judgmental judgment. There will be judgment, but it's not because he's judging you for your actions. It's because you've judged him for his actions. Does that make sense? You've said, I don't believe in that Jesus stuff. I like this a lot. Let me, let me, let me spin you around a little bit. Um, John 3.16, everyone knows this verse, correct? For God, my kids can say this one. Your kids can too, I'm sure. Um, even baseball players know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, period. I'm so glad that this is the most popular verse in the Bible because it is the gospel in its simplest form, right? God loves everyone, the world, the cosmos is the Greek word. So he loves them so much, he gave his son so the son could die so the whole world could be saved. And if anyone just believes, he's saved. But verse 17 is equally important and a lot of people don't know what it says. So let me read that to you. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn or aka judge the world, but in order that he would, in order that the world might be saved through him. Put it simply, God did not send Jesus into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. See, that's equally important, isn't it? He's coming, yes, he's a judge, but he's non-judgmental. He's coming not to judge, but to save. If you trust in Jesus, you're saved. Simple as that. It goes on as well, verse 18, whoever believes in Jesus is not judged or condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Do you see that? Everyone's invited. Everyone, all you have to do is believe. If you believe, you're not condemned. But if you don't believe, well, then you're already condemned. You condemned yourself because this offer is on the table. It's free. All you have to do is accept it, but you won't accept it. So you condemned yourself. Do you see that? You're already included before you were excluded. So the judgment parables are going to be very interesting, I think, as we look at them. So 
Bottom line, grace alone does not mean there is no judgment. It just means that the good news says that the judgment's already been poured out on Jesus and we can thank him. We can praise him and we can worship him and we can dedicate our life to him. Does that make sense? Have I confused anyone? No? Okay, good. Well, you guys are probably wanting to hear a parable, aren't you? Just, this is, just, just do a parable. That's what you came here for, a parable, right? How about this? just do a parable? I told Kelly, when I say this, my hope is that you're all going to be like, yeah, yeah, woo, do it, do a parable, yes, <laughs> parable. <laughs> all right, let's do it. Here it is, the vineyard laborers, the laborers of the vineyard. Raise your hand, have you heard this parable before? Everyone? Yes, good, good class. You've read it before, good. I can skim through it then since you already have the cliff notes. Let me just real quickly just kind of, instead of putting the whole thing on the screen, let me narrate it, you know, as, as best as I can remember it. Um, there's a master of a vineyard. He is the owner of a vineyard. Let's call him Robert Mandavi, okay? He has a vineyard, 1,000 acres of grapes. And I don't know a lot about vineyards, but I know just a little bit from traveling Highway 94, and um, they give you tours, and they tell you a little bit about the way they make the wine. So the grapes have to grow on the vine for as long as possible. They want those grapes to be connected to the vine as long as they can because the more they're connected, the longer they are, the more sugar gets into the grape, and the more sugar into the grape, the better the fermentation process and therefore the better the wine. But the problem is, is the longer you wait, the closer you get to the unknown, especially in Missouri, of when winter will come. And winter could just come too early. And if it does, it will wipe out your crops and you will have no grapes. And so what I think vineyard owners do is they wait as far as they can until they watch Channel 2 News and they see there's a cold front coming in and then they call all their friends and buddies and they say, let's get out there and get those grapes now. That's what Robert Mondavi does. He says, it's going to be 20 below this weekend, so um, let me go to the local hiring hall and get as many guys as I can. So he gets up at 6 in the morning and he goes to the local QT uh, when, when I was in college, I, I worked for a construction worker, and he kind of hired me as a foreman. He let me drive his truck, and he would make me at 6 in the morning go to QT and pick up a truckload of workers. This is in Texas. You're allowed to do that in Texas back then. Um, so you just grab a truckload of workers, and they worked really hard, and they worked really good, and we paid them well. Um, and so, so this guy goes to the local hiring hall, 6 a.m. He says, look, everyone knows who I am. I'm Robert Mondavi. I've got the best winery, the best vineyard in all of town. I'm also going to pay you the best. Better than that guy, Gallo, right? Forget about him. Um, I'm gonna, you, you come and work on my field, I'm going to pay you well. In fact, I'm going to pay you $120 for a day's wage. 12 hours, right? About 10 bucks an hour. That's good. That's, that's better than minimum wage today, right? Come work for me, I'm going to give you 120 bucks. So he brings them all in there at 6 a.m. They start picking the grapes, and Robert Mondavi's looking at his thousands of acres and saying, I need more. So he goes back out at the third hour at 9 a.m., and he grabs a couple other guys. And he says to those guys, look, you know who I am. I'm famous. I'm, I'm going to pay you well. I'm not going to ruin my famous reputation. I don't know how much I'll pay you. Just come out and work for me. Work as long as you can, and I'll pay you well. So they do. About noon comes, and he's watching Fox News, and he finds out that... No, he's not watching Fox News. He's watching CNN, and he finds out that um, that storm is coming a day early. Those meteorologists always get it wrong, don't they? It's coming a day. So now he gets really scared. He goes back and he gets another group of people, and it's noon. And again, another at three, and then again, another at five. Now, here's the way I see five. It's five. It's done, right? I'm thinking it's Friday. No one's working at five. He goes to the hiring hall. There's no one standing there, right? Everyone's already gone home. Or 
to the bar. That's where you go on a Friday night at five, happy hour. So this guy has to go around the back and find the riffraff, the, the, the kind of scratchy people. Maybe they're wearing leather jackets and have tattoos and, and, and maybe she's got pink hair, you know? And they're just a little, they've already, they're already three beers in on their six pack. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about? They're standing outside, there's smoke everywhere. Smoking cigars, smoking cigarettes, smoking, you can fill in the, the gap. And he, and he says, tell you what, there's one hour, I just need one hour from you guys. I know the day's over, you give me one hour, I'll pay you. I'm Robert Mondavi, I'll pay you well. And I'm thinking these guys say, what the heck? I mean, least, the least thing that can happen is I'll get $10, and if all 10 of us get $10, that's $100, we're going to have a good time tonight, right? Come on, we're gonna do, we're, all we got to do is work an hour and get 100 bucks. that's a lot of beer money. So here's the way, here's the way I, I think this happens, because these are hard workers. I used to work by the hour. And what do you do when you work by the hour? You go to work and you add up, how much money am I going to make today? If I continue this rate for five days, how much money will I make for the week? Not enough, right? I need a different job. You figure that out, don't you, real quick. So these guys are smart like that. They're pretty good at simple math. They come to work, they start picking the grapes, they start talking, hey, how much are you getting paid for this? Well, he told me he paid me $120 for the whole day. All right, if there's 12 hours in a day, um, I think that's, here's the one, um, that's, 10, that's $10 an hour. Okay, cool. So if I worked, if I worked not, you know, if I worked nine hours, I'm going to get somewhere around $90, right? That's what these guys are thinking. The next group's thinking the same thing. I'm probably going to get 60 bucks. I'm okay with that. I'm going to work six hours, get 60 bucks. I'm okay. It's a good day. How many of you wouldn't mind making 60 bucks for six hours of work? I wouldn't. The guy that showed up at three, hey, I'll make 30 bucks. If I go to work today, I'm going to make 30 bucks. They're all getting excited. And the riffraff who showed up at five says, I'm going to get 10 bucks. It's cool. If we all put our 10 bucks together, we're going to have a good time. But then Robert Mondavi decides he wants to do something fun. He tells his foreman, let me pay him. I'm going to do something unique. I'm going to, I'm going to pay him last first, first last, so that I can show them that the first are last and the last are first. So bring the last first, and I'll pay him. So the last come in, and Robert Mondavi hands, I'm just going to think of it this way. The first girl who comes through, you know, she's got the purple hair tattoo. She's got a cigarette in her ear. Um, she takes the envelope. She walks away. She opens it up, and there's six crisp $20 bills. And you know what she says? She says, <laughs> she's thinking, that guy made a mistake. He paid, the he paid what he was supposed to pay the first guys to me, probably because they flipped it around. I'm getting out of here. And as she's scooting away, her boyfriend runs up. Hey, babes, check this out. I got six crisp 20s. She's like, me too. And he's like, oh. <laughs> and they get their whole gang together, and they all got $120. And pretty soon, everyone in line knows because there's a commotion going on over there. And it doesn't take them long to figure out. They got paid $120 for one hour. So the first guys are starting to do their quick math, right? Oh, maybe Robert Mondavi meant 120 an hour. Oh my gosh, this is freaking me out. So quickly, you do the math. The guys who got there at three are thinking they're going to get 360 bucks, and they're happy. The guys that got there at 12 are going to get 720, and they're happy. The guys that got there at 9 a.m. thinking they're going to make over a grand for a days of work, and they're probably losing their mind thinking about how they're going to spend it. And lo and behold, the guys who started at six thinking they're going to retire early. You know what I mean? We're done. We're going to Honolulu, right? Imagine what would happen if you were in this situation. If you were the guy 
that got paid $120 for a day's, I mean, for an hour, and you're the guy who's thinking you're going to get um, $1,400 for the whole day. How would you feel when you got up to that line and you opened up your envelope and you're like, this isn't $1,400. In fact, this is just $120 what gives. You know what I'm saying? I, I want that to be your discussion question, actually. Um, without getting too theological, right? I know you know the parable, but just think about what it would feel like to be there. Uh, describe how you would respond if you were in the last group who worked one hour and got 120, and then also describe how you would respond if you were in the first group who worked 12 hours and also got 120. Let's talk about that for about three minutes. So I, I, I get the sense that you guys have thought about this long enough now. You know that this is not a fun parable. I mean, no matter how you put it, it's not fun. I mean, unless you're the riffraff, then it's fun. But for everyone else, it's like, but wait a minute. I feel cheated. I feel tricked. And Jesus tells this parable, and it's in, a, and it's in the parables of judgment. Why is it in the parables of judgment? Well, let me just read from, for you the last three verses so that we get them right. Matthew chapter 20, verse 11. Jesus goes on with the parable. And on receiving it, this is the, la- the first group who received the money, the last, you know, the last group who received the money, on receiving their envelope of 120 instead of 1,400, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. We worked way harder than them for you. Good point, good point, right? And the master says to one of them, friend, comma, and I, and I highlighted that word friend because in Greek, it is, there are a million different words for friend. We do this, right? Yo, what's up, dog? Um, um, man, d- bro, right? Brother. We've, we've got different words for friend, right? And those are all positive words. But then there are also negative words for friend. We would say something like, dude, you know what I mean? Like maybe that's a negative, like you. Or maybe we'd say, I know I said dude twice, but that, we would say, buster. Hey, buster. Or hey, 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 pal. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? Hombre. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. You'd say something that means friend but has a negative connotation. In Greek, that's this word. Um, Jesus uses the same word when he talks about the guy who's wearing the the, the garments at the wedding. He's not wearing the right garments. Jesus walks, the master walks up to him and says, hombre, right? Not the, not the positive friend word, the negative friend word. And it's the same time Jesus uses that same Greek word when Judas kisses him. And he says, friend, why did you betray me with a kiss? He's like, buster, why did you betray me? That's, it's a negative friend word, okay? All right, back to the story. Buster, pow, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not, did you not agree with me for $120? Take what belongs to you and go before I call the cops. I paid you what I said I was going to pay you. Now stop. That's why it's a parable of judgment. Because these people are pressing up against him and he's saying, you have no right. I did what I said I was going to do. Now get out of here. He goes on though. I chose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first. I think Jesus has turned to the disciples at this point and said, so the last, least, little, lost, dead will be first, and the first will be last. He's still on grace. He's still on 
He's still on the, you know, the, the, the key to grace is resurrection from the dead. It's the riffraff who gets it, not the ones who think they're all that. You see that? But we don't like it. You shouldn't like it. If, we're, if you're honest, as I'm being honest with myself, you should not like it if you were in the first group who got hired. Not at all. Not one stinking bit. I don't know if you guys noticed this or not, but do you notice how this is so much like the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector from last week? Let me just unpack it a little bit. The, par- the parable of the prodigal son, remember, the, the young son spent all his money on prostitutes and gambling. He comes home and gets a party, and the older son says, all my life I've done everything you wanted me to do. I've obeyed all your stinking rules, and you never even threw me a party. Dad's like, I've taken care of Everything that I have is yours. You, you, had, you had every opportunity to do what you wanted. It's not, it's not my fault you're miserable. It's your fault you're miserable. Your brother, on the other hand, he was dead, now he's alive. And so it's fitting for us to celebrate. He died to himself. Last week, you guys looked at the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee stood up and held up his record. I do this, I do this, I don't do that. Look at me, I am good. And I love the way Keller portrayed that. He was good. We can't deny the fact that he's better than us. He obeys all the laws. He ties on his mint and his dill. He gives a tenth of that. He cares. He cares about the holiness of God. The tax collector is the worst. He's like a Nazi. He's evil. He's running out, skimming off of the top of people's hard labor, taking that money for himself and buying expensive scotch and $500 call girls, as Capon says. And he falls on his face and says, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner, I have nothing. And Jesus says, I tell you, he is justified before God. He went home justified, and the Pharisee did not. That's the same story, is it not? The last workers who said, oh, they get $120, and the first workers who have had this great big record working in the scorching heat all day long, you're going to get the same thing as them, man. And you don't like that. You shouldn't like that. I don't like that. Can I prove to you that you don't like it? Let me prove it to you. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to stretch it to prove it. So don't call me a heretic. I'm doing it on purpose. I'm telling you in advance. What would happen if the tax collector came back seven days later, a week later, back to church on Saturday, right? And said the same thing. Oh, me. I'm a sinner. Forgive me, Lord. Have mercy on me. And yet, during those past seven days, there was not a single bit of reform. He still drinks, he still goes out with $500 call girls, and he still is stealing from the Jews. What do you expect God would say in response? In your heart of hearts, you want God to say, I don't believe you. (laughs) But the only way we can really interpret the parable is God's going to say, I tell you the truth, he's come to the end. He is going to be justified. let Let me do you one better. What happens if the tax collector came back 14 days later? Week two, and he falls on his face again saying, I'm a sinner, forgive me. And we learned that he did have some reform, half reform, right? He's not stealing from everyone, just the ones he thinks deserves it. He's not drinking expensive scotch. Now he's just drinking Jameson. And uh, he's not going out with $500 call girls. He's just doing the local run-of-the-mill ones. And so he says, look, look, I'm doing a little better, God. I'm trying harder. I'm getting a little better. What would you expect God to say then? Either, I'm noticing your effort, so I'll forgive you, or you've come to the end of your rope, you accept that you have nothing to offer except your need for forgiveness, and therefore I will forgive you. You see what I'm saying? 
if we, if, we, if, we, if we get excited for the tax collector because he actually had half reform, which is what all we really have anyway, I think, I'm, I'm convinced of. All those people who pretend like they've got it all figured out, I don't think they do. They've still only got half reform. They're halfway better than they used to be. Um, what we've done then is we've taken Jesus' parable and we've made it the opposite of Jesus' parable. We've put the Pharisees' words in the tax collector's mouth. Here's my list. I'm, I'm doing better on these things. And with your help, I'll do even better next week. You see how that just is the opposite of what the parable is all about? What the parable is about is don't ever, ever, ever hold up a list and say, look what I've been doing for you, God. Instead, just go to God and say, I know as well as you know that I don't deserve anything from you. Rich Mullins used to say, if I get hell, that's better than I deserve. I don't deserve anything. Please have mercy on me. And God says, that's the kind of loser I can raise from the dead. So, in conclusion, inclusion before exclusion. These people were accepted first. They were in first. They were included. But when they got, by the time they figured out how gracious God really is, they didn't like it. And so now they're excluding themselves. Do you see it? They've excluded themselves. Their attitude got spoiled, and they excluded themselves. So that's the parable in a nutshell. How do we wrap it up? What do we do with it? How do we apply it? Um, I have to share this quote with you. Listen to this. Robert Capon says, The difference between the blessed and the cursed is one thing and one thing only. The blessed accept their acceptance and the cursed reject it. But the acceptance is already in place for both groups before either does anything about it. Jesus has given it to everyone. To put it another way, heaven is populated by nothing but forgiven sinners, and hell is populated by nothing but forgiven sinners. The Lamb of God takes away the sins of the cosmos, not just the chosen few. Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself, all to me. The difference between heaven and hell, accordingly, is simply that those in heaven accept the endless forgiveness while those in hell reject it. You know, we wrestled with the, what hell was about about six months ago, and I wish I had this quote then. I love it. I think it fit. It helps my view of hell a lot. And it makes sense with all these parables as well. God says, I'm going to give it to you, but you're the one. You're the one who chooses not to believe. You're the one who tries to show me your record when what I really want you to do is die already and let me raise you up. The other alternative is that I can preach like every other preacher who has learned that the hanging judge meant God sells. And I can say, try harder, do better, be gooder, or else, which I don't even know how to fit that into this parable, to tell you the truth. I can't think of a single way to fit that into this parable. So the world doesn't operate by your records. It operates by your lack of record. Do you see that? <laughs> the less you have to offer, the more God is going to forgive you. The more you have to offer, the more God has to get you convinced that you have nothing to offer. One last quote, and then we'll wrap up. If the, if the world could have been saved by bookkeeping, it would have been saved by Moses, not Jesus. The law was just fine, and God gave it a good thousand years or so to see if anyone could pass the test like that. But when nobody did, when it became perfectly clear that there was no one who was righteous, no, not even one, God gave up on salvation by the books. He canceled everybody's record in the death of Jesus and rewarded us all equally and fully with a new creation and the resurrection of the dead. 
He's going to pay the last workers the same as the first workers. It doesn't matter how hard you tried or how hard you didn't try. All you need is to believe. That's hard. Some people don't like it. So in the end, I want to, I want to repeat myself again. The grace alone doctrine does not mean that there is no judgment. It just means that the judgment has already been put on Christ. And he says, for those who believe that, for those who believe in my words and follow my words and follow me into my death and take up their cross and follow me and die with me, I will raise them up on the last day. But to those who continue to try and continue to prove themselves and continue to get mad when things aren't fair, they're already out. They've already judged themselves. I can't do anything about that. They're party poopers. And we're going to have a party. And Jesus wants to remind us of that. He said, as often as you gather, when you gather to worship, I want you to take of this bread and take of this cup to remember that I died and bled for you. The judgment of God was poured out on me so that you can be saved. And every week, every week, brothers and sisters, friends, you're going to come to church and you're going to try to say something like, I did better this week. I, I nailed that one. Is that true? If we're honest, I would probably say that most of us, if not all of us, don't say that. Instead, we say, oh my goodness, <laughs> another week, another failure. Like you said earlier, I'm st I still can't shake this one thing. I'm still not loving my neighbor as I should. I'm still not being generous as I should be. I'm still angry in my heart and unable to forgive my coworker. Oh, Jesus says, and when you come and worship, break the bread, drink the cup, and remember that I died. And that's all you need. This is all you need. This is all you need. How about we do that tonight? Let's pray.